Okay, let's pray for God to meet us in the Word this morning. What an amazing passage, Lord. Thank you for helping me this week. Uh, There's numerous times I was just saying, help me, help me understand, help me get what you're saying, Lord Jesus, in this passage, and thank you for helping me. And I, I pray for your help now, too, and for my heart and for all of our hearts. We want to come submissive. We want to come saying yes, even before we hear, because this is your word. We love you, Lord Jesus. We trust you. We will follow you anywhere. So help us to take your word to heart this morning and let your spirit use this passage to shape and mold us in powerful ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be covering verses 38 to 48 this morning, taking two sections because they really overlap powerfully. Uh, If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'd like to have everybody have a Bible. Uh, And Matthew 5.38 is on page 810 in the Bibles that we're passing out. This passage has been powerful in the lives of believers throughout church history. Let me give you one example. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany uh, during the years leading up to World War II and then the years of World War II. And he watched with horror as Hitler gained power. And he saw Hitler lie to the public. And he saw Hitler uh, use violence against those who were politically opposing him and ultimately kill many of those who were politically opposing him. And he saw Hitler command German soldiers to invade defenseless countries and command them to commit horrifying atrocities against the population. And he heard verified reports of something that he could not believe, except that he kept hearing reports of these terrible things happening in these concentration camps. And so here he is, a follower of Jesus Christ, seeing this happening. At the same time, he, is, he has friends in the military, and he hears them talk about a plot that they are pursuing. They're planning a way to assassinate Hitler. And he knows that because of some of the connections that he has and some of the freedom of mobility that he has, that he could help this plot happen. And so he's wrestling with what should I as a follower of Jesus do as I see this wicked man rising up in power and hear about horrifying things happening. What does Jesus call me to do? And the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is one of the passages that he wrestled with and prayed over and talked about with his friends and pondered. So let's look at what he read. and Let's read it for ourselves this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That was a, not so much a sign of inflicting pain, although it would cause pain, but it was, it was deeply dishonoring. It was, a, it was a blatant insult to you if somebody would do that to you. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The context of that is the Roman soldiers had occupied Israel, and they could draft you, carry my stuff over to this city, please, and you'd have to say, yes, sir. 
That's the background there, military conscription. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. It's a powerful passage. Now, just to get the little bit of context here, once again in this passage, we see that Jesus is correcting something twice. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and then he corrects it. So what's Jesus correcting? Start with verse 38. What's he correcting here? In this verse, 38, he's quoting from Exodus 21:24, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, if you read the verse before that, Exodus 21:23, you'll see that the context of this verse is God is giving judges instructions for how they decide punishment for crimes. That's what's being talked about here. This is judges. So the punishment must fit the crime. The context is judicial, legal system, punishment for crimes. What happened was the Pharisees took this verse and they applied it to everyday relationships. Okay? Somebody hurts you, you can hurt them. They gossip about you, gossip back at them. They dishonor you in some way, you can dishonor them. Old Testament said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, go get them. So the Pharisees took this as a call to seek revenge. But see, this is a terrible distortion of the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall not. So in verses 38-39, what Jesus is correcting here is not the Old Testament. The Old Testament did call for judicial punishment when crimes were committed, gave the judges instruction, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's legal, that's justice, that's right in the judicial system. That had nothing to do with personal relationships. When it came to personal relationships, the Old Testament said, do not seek revenge. And so the Pharisees distorted the Old Testament, and Jesus is correcting not the Old Testament, but the Pharisees' distortion. Does that make sense? Okay, second example, or second place where he corrects is in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you could think that that whole verse is a quote from the Old Testament, that the Old Testament called you to hate your enemy, but it's not a quote from the Old Testament. The first half is, you shall love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18. The second half is not. The Old Testament never says you shall hate your enemy. In fact, remember the passage? Uh, I think it's in Exodus. I should have found the, the reference, but... If you are walking and you find your enemy's lost donkey, this is your enemy's lost donkey, your enemy, 
the one who has stolen from you, the one who has beaten you up, he's your enemy. If you find your enemy's lost donkey, remember what the Old Testament says to do? Take it back to him. Bad, or they don't go bad, they go hee-haw, hee-haw, okay, here's, here's, your, here's your donkey. And then um, in Proverbs 25, 21, this is what Paul quotes in, Revelation, uh, in Romans 12, Proverbs says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So what Jesus is correcting here is not the Old Testament. What Jesus is correcting here is the Pharisees' distortion of the Old Testament. They made up this idea about, you know, love your, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And Jesus says, no, love your enemy. Okay, so in both of these places, verses 38 and 43, Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting the Pharisees' distortion of the Old Testament. That's the background, okay? So what is Jesus then telling his followers to do? Now, this is a passage that's very easy for us to to water down. We can kind of bring it down so that it fits our indwelling sin. Oh, yeah, that... Maybe that's what he's saying. This is a very powerful, shocking, startling passage. So before we look at what he calls us to do, I thought it would be wise to, to back up a little bit and ask, how is it possible to do what Jesus commands here? Because if you don't approach this from the perspective of what God can do in our hearts, we won't, we'll just feel like giving up. But what he says here is so radical. What he says here is so shocking. What he says here is so startling that it would be easy for us just to say, what? There's no way that's going to happen. I could never live that way. So let's start with how is it possible to do what Jesus commands? And he gives us a pointer as to how it's possible in verses 44 and 45. Here's what he says. Now, don't be shocked because what this sounds like, well, let's just keep going and I'll, I'll tell you what this means. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Okay, now if all we had was this verse and no other verses of Jesus' teaching, you would think that what Jesus is saying is, first, what you have to do is love your enemies. Start loving your enemies. Just do it. Just make yourself better. Become good. Become a a lover of your enemies. And when you reach a certain level of loving your enemies, then you'll be worthy of God being your Father. So you start with loving your enemies, just do it, lift yourself up by your bootstraps, change your own heart, and then then you'll you'll be be a son of your father who is in heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because many other passages show that that's not what he's saying. And my favorite one in the Sermon on the Mount is the very first verse. We should all know by now what the very first verse of the Sermon on the Mount is, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven, which includes God's fatherhood. It's the poor in spirit who are blessed because they receive the kingdom of God and knowing God as their father, which is included in that. So what does poor in spirit mean? It means you realize, I don't love my enemies. I am spiritually poor. I am morally bankrupt. I have nothing in me to recommend me to God. And you come poor in spirit to the Lord Jesus and you say, help me. I need you. Forgive me. Change me satisfy me. And the moment you come to Jesus, poor in spirit, with no pretense of righteousness, no thought that there's something that that recommends you to God, realizing, I, I need pure mercy here. I need mercy. And you come to Jesus in that way and trust him. At that moment, everything changes. 
All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And at that moment, something happens that you've never experienced before. Because up to that point, your sins had separated you from God as your father. But at that moment when you put your trust in Jesus, God then becomes your father. And that's not just, oh, God's my father now. It changes you in three ways, as I just was praying about this. One way it changes you is you are deeply humbled by his mercy, that me, a sinful man, who has shaken my fist in God's face, turned my back on God, rejected God again and again and again, that he would send his own son, punish his own son in my place so that I could be saved and forgiven and have him as my father. You're humbled by his mercy. That's the first thing that happens. You'll feel this humility. Before that, there was pride in our hearts. When God becomes your father, you're humbled. Your heart's changed. Secondly, for the first time, God pours his love into your heart. You feel his love poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. The ache in your heart, the emptiness of your heart, the longings of your heart that nothing else has satisfied for the first time, you are satisfied. You're filled with his love pouring into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And then third, so you got, you're humbled, you're filled with his love, and then third, you are secured. Because you know the God of all the universe who has power over everything, he has promised repeatedly through his word, that he will take care of every need you will ever have. David Sachs is going to be taken care of with his family, okay? There's no question about it. He's promised every need you ever have. He'll give you wisdom. He'll provide the money you need. He'll provide the strength you need. He'll provide the, the sanctification you need. He'll provide the everything you need, the comfort you need, the everything you need. So we're humbled by his mercy. We're filled with his love. And we are secured and filled with peace in his promise. Okay, so you come poor in spirit, no love for an enemy. He becomes your father. You're humbled, you're filled, you're secured. And humble, filled, and secured hearts love people. Because all your needs are going to be met. You have joy filling your heart. And when your joy, when joy gets, is filling your heart, in your humility, you'll flaw with love for others. You love everybody, including your enemies. And so enemy love is an automatic result of someone who experiences God as his or her father. And so what Jesus is saying in this verse, in verses 44 and 45, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be shown as a son of your father who is in heaven. The Greek words there fit that so that you may be shown as someone who has God as your father. So everyone who experiences God as his or her father, their hearts will be changed so that they love their enemies. And so when somebody loves his or her enemies, it shows that God's their father. Okay, so here's the quiz now. Ready? Got got a quiz here. Which comes first? Loving your enemy or having God as your father? Which comes first? Having God as your father comes first, right? You come poor in spirit, no enemy love, trust Jesus, forgiven. You're humbled by his mercy. You're filled with his presence and you are secured by his promises. And that heart that's humbled, filled and secured loves people like never before, including your enemies. So that's how we are enabled to do what God calls us to do here. If you don't, Get, get some sense in your heart of being humbled by his mercy 
having your heart be filled with him pouring his love into your heart and the security that comes from trusting his promises, you'll never be able to even think about doing what he calls us to do here. Okay, so are we there? Now, one more thought about how our hearts get changed by knowing God as our Father. This, it's not like, like your heart's proud, empty, and worried down here, and you have a God as your Father, and now for the rest of your life, you're perfectly humbled and filled and secure the whole time. Is that, my, my heart is not like that. Is, is any, anybody's heart here like this? If so, you're in heaven, okay? That, that's heaven, okay? So we're down here, I'm proud, I'm empty, and I'm, and I'm worried and insecure. I have God as my Father, I trust Jesus Christ, and then it's a, it's a battle, Okay. There's times where I still get proud. There's times where I still feel very empty because I'm looking to other things to satisfy me. There's times where I still worry about this and that and the other thing. But when you come before Jesus again, poor in spirit, and you say, change my heart. Show me the Father again. Use your word and the power of the Spirit to help me to see and to feel. And then you see his mercy, you're humbled. The Holy Spirit pours his love into your heart again so you feel filled and then you see his promises and his power and your strength and in peace. So I don't imply like it's just flatline, just everything's fine. We, we're, we always are loving our enemies all the time, all the time. No, it's a battle, but that's a whole other sermon. Okay, so just as long as you understand, that's how it works. Now, what then happens in our hearts when God becomes our father? I think Jesus gives three main answers here. First, We won't seek revenge when someone hurts us. I think that's the point of verses 38 to 41. Let's read those verses. I'll make a couple of comments about what he's saying here. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember, the Pharisees used that verse to show that you could and should seek revenge in everyday relationships when someone hurts you. Jesus corrects that in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Which means don't seek revenge when somebody in everyday relationships hurts you. Don't seek revenge. Then what happens next is I think Jesus gives three illustrations to show that it's better to suffer more loss personally than to seek revenge. Three startling illustrations to drive home the point that we don't seek revenge. First illustration, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now the main point in all of this is don't seek revenge when someone hurts you. So how are we able to do this? Let's go back to where our hearts are at. Before God was your father, okay, all you had was earthly things to satisfy you and to secure you. That's all you had was, was earthly things. And even, even those, were, they weren't really satisfying. You were trying to get more, and they weren't very secure. You're trying to get more. But all you had before God was your father was earthly things to secure and satisfy you. Okay? And so if, if you've got this little stack of stuff that's just tiny little satisfaction, a little bit of security, and somebody takes part of it, are you kidding me? Boom! Okay? Because this is all I got. But when God becomes your father, okay, it's not just earthly things that are barely satisfying you a little bit and that give you little, I mean, how much security? Anyway, none. But anyway, you thought there was some. But when God becomes your father, all of a sudden God is your, you're humbled by his mercy You are filled. You have God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Like Dave prayed this morning, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. He can so fill you that he is all you need. 
So you're, you're, you're filled and you're secured because he's promised, I will take care of every need you have the rest of your life through eternity. Thus saith the Lord. So you're satisfied and you're secured. And so when someone takes something from you, you're humbled by God's mercy so you don't have this, this wrong thing. It's like, I've done wrong too. And I've gotten mercy. I love mercy. I love mercy. People who love mercy, we give mercy. So there's mercy. Somebody takes something that's given you joy. You say, I've got God to satisfy me. Somebody threatens some of your security in earthly ways. You say, but God has promised to take care of every need I ever will have. And so you will not have this rising up saying, I'm going to get back at him because he took something that's vital to my future. Nothing that anybody can do to you is vital for your future. You are free. God's your father. So, the principle, the impulse of our hearts when God is our Father is, I'm not going to pursue revenge when somebody hurts me. That, that's the impulse of our hearts. Now, the impulse can look differently at different times and different circumstances. Okay? This is really important to understand. Here's an example. When I was doing real estate, I was at, had a little busy season there, and I had too many clients, and I, I gave one client to another agent, and the deal was, when the escrow closes, I get a percentage of the commission. All deal, done deal, agreed upon, fair square, okay, done. Escrow closed, you know, and there's no check in my box. Uh, next day, no check in my box. Week later, I went and I said, you know, that escrow closed, is that right? And so, uh, did, were we going to you know, have a check coming to me? Oh, he said, um... I've been short on money, so I wasn't able to do that. And uh, give me another month. I said, okay. Well, a month went by, no money. Okay, so here I am. And as I prayed and just pondered, the, the Lord gave me grace, and I think leading just to let it go. He gave me grace, uh, gave me some sense of being humbled by his mercy. He was satisfying me with his presence. He promised He's going to take care of all of our financial needs. And so he gave me grace just to let it go. That's what I felt like he wanted me to do. And I did let it go. I, I'd shared the Lord with this guy a couple of times. I felt like in the context that was the right thing to do just to let it go. And so I did. Now, another example. Let's say somebody breaks into your house. Steals a bunch of your stuff. Okay? Now, God is still your father, right? Okay, so you're humbled by his mercy. Your heart is satisfied in his presence by the Holy Spirit. You're secured knowing that he takes care of everything. So you don't need to seek revenge to this person at all. You don't need to seek revenge. But I could imagine you saying something like this. He robbed my house. Maybe in this case, in order to avoid further people being victimized by him. And maybe to uphold the law and order of society. I need to press charges here. Maybe that's what I need to do. And you can do that without seeking personal revenge. You could even be concerned for this person who, when he's arrested and gets tried and ends up serving time in prison, you could be deeply concerned for him, but still pursue justice in that case. Okay? So the way not seeking revenge will look can vary. This really was brought home to me. I've, I've shared this with you before, but a year and a half, I think, or two years ago, I was on, on, on a jury and... We found the defendant guilty of um, aggravated assault and robbery, and it was heartbreaking. And I and a number of the jurors, we, we, we wept as we came to that conclusion. 
and there was no sense of what he'd done, you know, like personal get him. There was a sense of, oh, and, and God gave, actually another one of the women on juror was, was a believer also, but we knew we needed to find him guilty and he needed to go to prison to protect others and to uphold the judicial system. So see, you can do that. So the impulse in our hearts is not to seek revenge, but that can look different ways depending on the circumstances and what's going on. Okay? So that's the first point that I think Jesus wants to give to us. Second point is we'll want to give freely to meet needs. That's the point of verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, now remember, go back to before you had God as your father. This was your stuff, earthly stuff. This is my earthly joy. I'm trying to get satisfaction from this. I'm trying to be secure in this earthly stuff. It's not really satisfying me. It's not really giving me security. And so somebody asks me for something. It's like, are you kidding me? I, I mean, this is hardly doing it for me. I mean, I'm going to have even less if I give something to you. So there's just this, ah, there wasn't this impulse in our hearts to give. It's like, ah, what am I going to get? You know, those are all the kind of things going on. But when God becomes your father, you're humbled by his mercy. You're filled with his love. So you're not seeking your joy and stuff, and you're secured in his promises. So there's this impulse in your heart, the overflow of his love into your heart. You're flowing out in love and care for others. So there's this impulse in your heart. You want to give freely to meet people's needs. That Everyone who has God as his or her father, there will be this impulse in your heart to want to give freely to meet needs. When you see needs, you're going to, you're going to want to help. Now, that will look different in different situations. Okay, it's not always going to look the same. For example, let's say a friend from the past knocks on your door and uh, you say hello and he says, you know, and it's been years and uh, I've just really fallen on hard times and uh, could you spare $500, please? And now, because God's your father, there's this impulse in your heart at that point, you want to give freely to meet needs you you want you want to and so you may say come on in let's talk and you and you listen and it's on the up and up from all that you can tell and you know and so and, and the five hundred dollars your kids aren't going to starve if you give them the five hundred dollars okay so so in that case this impulse in your heart moves you to give and let, let me write you a check 500 bucks you know and you, and you may want to talk further and and be more communication so that's one way this impulse could could look Just give them the money okay but what if another friend checks himself into rehab and then gets out and knocks on your door and says, uh, you know, rehab's just not working for me right now. I just need a little space. Can you give me some money, get some alcohol? Now, in that case, okay, here's the impulse of your heart. You, you, have an, you still have the same impulse. You want to give freely to meet needs. But you know, in that case, that's not the most loving thing you could do for this person. Giving that would be harmful. Okay, so maybe you'd say, you know, I'm not going to do that, but come on in. Let me, let me make something to eat. Let's talk. Can I pray for you? What's going on? So the same impulse can look differently depending on the different circumstances. And there's hundreds of different, different combinations of scenarios. The point is, if we have by God as experiencing God as our Father, if we have this impulse in our hearts, the Holy Spirit will, with other scriptures, counsel from brothers and sisters, and giving us wisdom, guide us for what we should do in the varying circumstances that we face. Okay? Third point Jesus makes. We're going to want to do good for our enemies. 
That's the point of verses 43 and 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, again, remember before we had God as our Father, all we had was our earthly satisfactions and our earthly securities. And so if somebody takes like my reputation from me or takes a client from me or takes a part of a commission from me, okay, if that's going on, I'm not going to want to love this person. Okay, I'm not going to want to do good for this person. It's not going to be, be in there. But, but when you come to have God as your Father, the humility of his mercy, the joy of his love, and the security of his promises fills you so you will want to do good. You, you will care about everybody you see, including the one who has harmed you, including the one who has caused you loss. You will care for this person. Now, that's the impulse in your heart, to do good for everybody, including your enemies. There will be that impulse in your heart. Now, you have felt that, haven't you? At those points when you are close with the Lord, and you're fellowshipping with him in prayer and in the scriptures. You've, you've felt the humility, which means you don't need to get justice, but I've received mercy. I'm given mercy. You're, you're filled with joy. You're filled with security. You've felt that enemy love. It's an amazing thing. And that's what God gives to us through having him be as our father. But that impulse will look differently depending on the circumstances. I'll give you two examples again. Let's say you're working in construction and you've, you've just been promoted to be the, the foreman. Do you call it foreman? In construction, okay. Uh, but one of the other guys in your team is furious because he wanted to be the foreman. And he walks up to you and he says, you blank. I don't give a blank for your promotion. You're nothing but blank. And he walks away. Okay? Now, he's your enemy. Okay? Just verbally assaulted you. Okay, God's your father. Humbled by his mercy. All I deserve is hell. And you've saved me. And I know you as my father and I've got eternity with you. So you're just humbled by his mercy. And you're filled with his love. You're setting your heart on Jesus. Help me to trust you. Show me the father. Pour his love into my heart. Satisfy me. And he does that. And then help me just to be secure that even other people might have heard that conversation and a lot of talk going on. I'm secure in you. You will vindicate me. You will defend me. You will help me. And so you can love this man. And so if two weeks later you find out that his wife was diagnosed with cancer and they are faced with mounting medical bills and he's not able to make his mortgage payment, you pull out your checkbook and you write him a check. That's the overflow of your heart to do good for your enemies. See how that would work? Okay? That's one scenario. Another scenario, let's go back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He took things a different direction. He prayed over this passage. He prayed over Romans 13, that God has put the sword in place to accomplish his justice. There's the state, there's the sword. He prayed over that passage, many different passages. He sees Hitler rising in power, killing people, doing horrifying things. But because God is his father, Bonhoeffer is humbled, he's satisfied, he is secured. And so he longs for the salvation of Hitler. Could Hitler be saved of his sins and go to heaven if he repented and put his trust in Jesus Christ? Let's just be really clear on that. Yes. That's as astonishing as that he, any of us can. 
His, his, his wicked was very public, very outward, very visible. Ours may be more hidden, but it's, it's wicked. And so he longed for Hitler's salvation. He longed for Hitler's conversion. He wants Hitler's good. But Bonhoeffer also knew that he's called to love others. And he knew that there, were some, there was something he could do that could spare others harm. Namely, be involved in this plot to assassinate Hitler. And so for the sake of love, for the sake of love, Bonhoeffer decided to join the plot to assassinate Hitler. Knowing he's risking his life for the sake of love to help people not be further harmed. And as you maybe know the story, the plot was discovered and Hitler was arrested and ended up being killed by Hitler. Okay? But the point is that impulse that comes from knowing God as your father to do good to your enemies would both be behind the construction guy as he wrote a check for his mortgage and was in Bonhoeffer's heart as he plotted Hitler's death. The impulse to care for your enemies can be evident in both. Okay? All right, so do do you see how this works? Do you see why it's so important to go back to getting in touch with what it means to experience God as my Father, the humility of that, which takes the pride away, which makes me want to seek revenge, makes me want to keep my stuff, makes me want to not do good for somebody who's hurt me, takes the pride away. Having God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Again, that's, that's not our constant experience. It's not mine. That's very much up and down. But when I fight the fight of faith with prayer and the word, and the Holy Spirit pours love into my heart so I feel it, that I'm full. And, and I love people when that's happening. Okay, And then the security that comes from knowing God, the creator of the universe, who's sovereign over everything, has said, thus saith the Lord, I will take care of your every need. So the humility, the joy, the security of that changes our hearts. Changes our hearts. And we do crazy things like not seeking revenge when somebody's hurt us. We do crazy things like longing to to meet needs, to give freely to meet people's needs, and even doing good for those who are our enemies. And that enemy love shows God must be your father. God must be your father. And that's what Jesus says in verses 44 and 45. It will show that we are sons of our Father. But what that means is that it all comes from having and experiencing God as your Father. Okay, now, one last question to ask in this passage. Why is this so important? One reason is because it shows that God's our Father. Okay? But there's a second reason that he ends with. It's verse 48. Why is it so important that we give to others, don't seek revenge, love our enemies, A shocking statement. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus wants to shock us. Okay? You must be perfect. No one will enter God's holy presence in heaven who is not perfect. No one will. Don't think that what Jesus is saying here is that We can't be perfect. That's not what he's saying here. I mean, do you read the verse? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If what he wanted to say was you can't be, that's just not not what he's saying. I mean, to, to conclude that from this verse is to mangle the words of this verse. Jesus is saying we must be 
perfect. And that means three things, okay? All three are crucial. The first is that by faith in Jesus Christ, when you come poor in spirit, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because of his death on the cross, all your sins are forgiven, and you are clothed with Jesus' perfection. His moral blamelessness is given to you as a gift. Even though there's still indwelling sin in you, you are clothed with Jesus' perfection. And so at that moment, in God's eyes, you are perfect. You are perfect, seen by God, even though there's still indwelling sin in you. So that's one crucial part of this, is by faith in Christ, you're counted as perfect. Secondly, by faith in Christ, the moment you enter heaven, the moment you die, go to be with him, or he comes back, whatever comes first, you are transformed. The rest of your indwelling sin, removed. Okay, and at that point, you are morally perfect. Not just clothed with Jesus' moral perfection covering your indwelling sin, but the indwelling sin's gone. And at that point, you are perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. You are morally perfect at that point. So, conversion, you are counted as perfect. Glorification, when you die, he comes back, you, are, you become completely perfect. And then there's a third one, though, also. That is, in the meantime, by faith in Christ, we are becoming perfect. We are becoming more and more perfect. As we experience God as our Father through faith, and the humility is there, the joy is there, the security is there, we will, as we fight the fight of faith, to trust God, to, to feel that humility from seeing his mercy, to experience the joy of the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into our hearts, the security that comes from seeing God has promised. And the Holy Spirit gives you faith to say yes. So the humility, the fullness of joy, the security, and the result of that is that you will not seek revenge when people hurt you. You will want to give freely to meet needs. And you will do good. There will be this impulse to do good even to those who are your enemies and you will be growing and being perfect. Counted as perfect at the point of conversion, you'll be completely perfect when he glorifies you, you die, he comes back, whatever comes first, and then there's growing perfection that as you trust and fight the fight of faith and set your heart on his promises, you will see growing enemy love, giving to the needy, not seeking revenge in your life. So just just let this ring in your ears. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what he calls us to do. That's the punchline for this section. Okay, now what, what questions does this raise? I have no qualms with that whatsoever because, and, and I'm just, I don't know if that's what Bonhoeffer was doing, but sure, if he, if he feels like Jesus calls him to Join a plot to assassinate Hitler, then it would have been right to say, Lord, assassinate Hitler through us. Take him down. Absolutely. And may- maybe there's a difference between when, when the act is occurring, but what resonates, I mean, what I want us to understand is that you can, like when I was on jury, there were two things I was feeling. One is, this man did wrong, and he needs to be punished for it. And it's right that he be punished for it. That was a holy feeling in my heart. At the same time, why was I weeping? It's because I just felt so badly for him. Terrible background, all kinds of you know, uh, circumstances going on. And I think that at the same time, you can use force, because I, I was telling the courts to use force to keep this man locked up. I think you can choose to use force and weep at the same time. I think they're possible. Okay? So, so that to me, defense and revenge are different in that way as well. It's the matter of the heart. 
That is, what is revenge? Revenge is you're trying to make that person pay for what they've done to you. It's a personal vendetta. They've hurt me. I want to get back at them. That's always wrong. That's God's job, not our job. Right? Okay? And again, the, the impulse of love, which Jesus here is talking about towards enemies, we're called to love your family. And so defending your family would be appropriate. Okay, that, that's part of that impulse of love. So, so the important thing that I've found would help me with this passage is there's these, there's these impulses, there's, these, there's this heart change that comes where I, I don't want to seek revenge against this person. Ever, I should, I, want, I should never want to seek revenge, but I may want to pursue justice for the sake of justice, not for the sake of my own personal revenge. But so the impulse of love, in that case, the impulse of love in giving, the impulse of love in loving your enemy, that will take varying shapes depending on the circumstances and the scenarios. So what's always to be there is these impulses of not revenge, giving freely to meet needs, and loving my enemy. Those should always be there. So the impulse of love combined with, Father, what should I do? You will know. And there's... Lots of different combinations of how it might look in different situations. So, and there, there's a lot. I think there's probably lots of answers to that. So my first answer is that he will give you wisdom. James one five. He will give you wisdom for that decision. Okay. So you're asking how might he give you wisdom, and and it could come in a number of different ways. It could come from you praying over each option and just having a sense that you know this middle option fits the scriptures the best, given the circumstances. And this, this one fits better than this one and this one. They, none of them may be sin, but this one just fits the scriptures better. It may also come from counsel with other brothers and sisters. You know, so you just say, home group, could you pray with me about this? What do you guys think? And get their counsel. And the Holy Spirit could just impress upon you that one. Okay. Because I mean, the scriptures confirm it. All of those are possibilities. So it could be just wisdom, fits scripture, counsel from others, direct leading of the Holy Spirit, and there's probably some other options as well. So that's a really good question now. Let's stand together. I want to pray pray this over us. Because some of you, I would guess right now, have situations where you're angry at somebody. And how, how do you get over anger? I mean, what do you do? And you just grit your teeth and not think about it or breathe deeply. or what do you, I mean, the way to overcome anger, biblically, is to come poor in spirit. Say, help me. This person's cost me lots, painful. And I'm not seeing you clearly enough, Father, because you're my prize. You're my treasure. I have everything in you. You're even going to use that to bring me more of you. Help me. To, I'm not seeing it, though. Not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not, I'm not trusting you for that. Help me. Change me. And the result of that is that you will not want revenge. You may pursue justice, but you won't, you won't, it won't be a personal vendetta thing. You'll desire to give, and you'll love your enemies. So, Father, I just want to pray for each of us right now. I praise you, Jesus. You just didn't sit back and say, love your enemies. Pull it off. You can do it. But I praise you that through your death on the cross, we can know your Father as our Father. And that's the most important thing from this text, Lord. That's the foundation of this whole thing. So I pray that each of us this week would seek you more earnestly for fresh outpourings of your Holy Spirit making your Father real to us. We'd be humbled by his mercy. 
we would be filled with his love. We would be secured in his promises. I pray that each of us this week could seek you more earnestly in prayer and in the word and that you would pour out that supernatural work of the Spirit so we feel your fatherly presence filling us. And then, Lord, as that happens, free us from desire for revenge. Fill us so we want to give freely to meet needs. And fill us with love, love for those who have hurt us. You are so glorious. You can do that because you are such a treasure. I pray that I would experience that more and that each of us would experience that more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.